West Mount as we do each Sunday. Let's just continue that worship now in God's Word. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Romans 8 with me. Romans 8. Today we conclude this passage regarding the glory that is to be revealed to us. So for one final time in this passage, let's consider it in full to set the table this morning. Start in verse 18. Look at it with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Pray with me. Father, we ask and beg together that you would take these words and plant them deep into our heart. Give us, Lord, understanding this morning to take, as is the case so often in this book of Romans, familiar texts and open them up even broader. Expand our our vision, Lord. Enlighten us. Let us behold these wondrous things in your law. And Father, we pray we would not just be built up as we leave and live in light of them, but Father, that as we do go out in light of the ministry of the word this morning, that we would be changed so that you would receive glory. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We arrive this morning at verse 28, and you might have it memorized. Look at it with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe, as one of you asked me this week, you feel we could spend a whole morning on that verse, right? In reality, we could actually spend more than a whole morning on that one verse. It's true. It's a blessed truth. There's just so much here, and I've been begging the Holy Spirit to make that known through the ministry this morning. But to slow it down to that point, beloved, would be really a betrayal of the intention of this letter that we're working through. It is true, many theologians, you know them as systematic theologians, go here for doctrine, right? Romans 8.28, 
to talk about the golden chain and so on. And in one sense, beloved, that is understandable, and in its right place, it is okay. However, as we work verse by verse through Romans, our aim is Paul's aim in writing, right? Paul's point, as we've seen, is not to ultimately present a comprehensive doctrine of God's providence or predestination, although those elements are here and useful as we look to put such studies together. Instead, the apostle's primary aim in this passage, so let's get that hat back on, as we've seen, is to provide encouragement to believers living in between. Living in between the already and the not yet, give them encouragement in such circumstances. This is encouragement amid suffering, sin, decay, and as we'll see in verses 31 to 39, persecution. Needed encouragement. To that end, Westmount, we will remain faithful to the intent of this passage. There is an abundance here. There's just no question about it. This passage is so full. A wellspring of encouragement that we will take in this morning. But we will consider it as a whole. The blessed exclamation mark of our passage found in verses 28, 29, and 30. So let's start then with this, the assurance of the good. That's our first point, the assurance of the good. Let's consider verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says, as he lands this section, look at it, and we know, and we know. We consider that, stop for a moment, we consider that against what we learned last week. And what was that? The things we do not know. You remember that? Which is what to pray for. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought. As we saw last week, far from anxiety producing or prayer stopping, that reality should actually fuel us Christians. Why? We do not know, yes it's true, but God knows. The triune God knows and is working in triune activity in our prayer. Recall our hope and encouragement in prayer is that while we may not know, again, God knows. But even more, notice the focus. Notice where the word fixes our attention. Elementary stuff, I understand, but understand this. The word fixes our attention over and over again on God. You see that? On God. We are weak, but God is strong. We do not know, but God knows. Over and over and over again. Here again, the apostles' encouragement to the Roman Christians and us is that we know God and his work. Fix your mind on who you know. You know your God. You know he is powerful. As we sung this morning, fix your mind there. And with that in our minds, then, look at it again. I pray for fresh eyes for all of us this morning. Look at it again. Where are we to fix our mind? We know what we know, know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. We're going to see this in much detail in these verses. As we live in between the beginning and the end, awaiting glory, we do so buoyed by the knowledge of God. That he has a plan, and he has a purpose, and that he is sovereign. Now listen, God's people have always been directed toward the knowledge of God. Is that not true? Even in ancient Israel, 
What was the boast? What was the direction? Jeremiah 9 says this, If we are going to open our mouths, God says to Israel about anything, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Verse 24, But let him who boasts, if you will boast, Israelite, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And then this, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And listen, as in Israel, right? As in Israel we see so often, it continues through time for us today in the church. Colossians 1, 9-10, and even more, the apostle says, direct your prayers to that end. Listen to Colossians 1, 9-10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking what? What's the prayer? Listen. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and then listen, increasing in the knowledge of God. See that? Yes, pray to know God. Because as you see in Romans 8, we live in light of what we know, right? We live in light of what we know. And this is Paul's point in this section. Live in between, awaiting the glory to be revealed, in light of what you know of God. We would say even by further extension, his plan and purpose for the cosmos. Here, Roman believers know, we Christians know, as those who love God know, as those called according to his purpose know, that all things work together for good. Now, before we look at what we know, let us be clear, and we need to continue to do this, right? Paul gives all kinds of qualifiers on those that he is speaking to and referencing with respect to God. So who are those that love God? We're just going to follow the text here. Paul wants to take our attention to make sure it's just, he doesn't just say believers. He says a couple of things that demand our attention. So if we're following verse by verse, we need to do the same. So let's just follow the text. Who are those that love God? Well, think about what goes through your mind when you think about who loves God. As bad as things are today, and they're bad, of course, I would suggest that many still claim to love God. Is that not true? Even with all the things you're seeing out there, many, I might say more than you think, would say, well, well I love God. Of course, those are vague claims to a deity, but they would say that. Here's the thing, beloved, they just want to love him on their terms, right? That's why it's easy to say that you love God. It's easy when you love him on your terms. You love him your way. But here's the question, as biblicists, is that really love for God? You say, well, that may sound really high and out there, but listen, how does God define love for him? Is that not what you want to know? How how does God define? Define love for him. I better know how to love Carrie, right? I better know if I'm going to love her properly and rightfully, right? And the same for you in lesser loves. How does God say this is what love for me looks like? This is the most important question here, right? In Israel, those who love God were those that logically, rightfully, and lawfully responded to God's commands 
in light of his deliverance of them. Now again, this is a brief recap, but you know this, the second word, second commandment, listen to it again. As the law is given to a freely delivered people, newly delivered people, he gives, of course, the famous second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So we know that. The second command, do not have those images, those idols. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Here is love. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But listen, verse 6. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who what? Love me and keep my commandments. Yahweh says, that's how you love me. No idols, but more, you keep my commandments. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, familiar passage also to Israel. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love, there it is, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, love of God is tied to words of God. Do we see that, Westmount? There is no love of God apart from words of God. There is none. Let's unpack this a bit more so we're clear. So those who love God in Israel were those who kept his commandments. Yeah, that's Israel. Now, it's no different in the church. In fact, I want to submit to you, beloved, it gets more pointed as we move along. As we look now at the words of Jesus, it gets even more pointed. Listen to this from John 14, 15. From the mouth of Christ. He says this very simply, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Is that clear? If you love me, if you claim to love me, if you do love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, says Jesus, defining the terms. Beloved, those who love God, listen, base Base God-fearing here. Those who love God, obey God and keep his commandments. No rationalizing his commandments, no forsaking his commandments, no twisting his commandments. Those who love God, keep his commandments. Those who love God, don't say, did God really say? Those who love God, keep his commandments. So important, I, I, I can't say that enough. That's one character of those who love God, but so Important is this, we need to at least expound a bit more on a precious text like this. Who are those who love God? When you think about this verse, there's more. Those who love God are the ones that long for God. Now, there's many ways people today might want to express desire in some carnal, sensual sense. Let's listen right from the Word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 42, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You hear that yearning? Those who love God yearn for him. This is not a horizontal yearning for tomorrow. I'm excited for this trip and day and what's coming to me here. I yearn for God. Those who love God yearn for God. Listen to Psalm 63, same idea, you know this psalm. Psalm 63, noted, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I what? Seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, so there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Those who love God long for God. Also, those who love God love the things of God. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 119, 97? Oh Lord, how I love your law. Can we say that? Oh Lord, I love your law. Those who love God love the things of God. Love the things of God. Listen to Psalm 45, 6, 7. Say, well, what, what does God love? Psalm 45, 6, 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness. Do you love righteousness? Do you love righteousness? You love it like the psalmist. Because there's more. Not only does those who love God love the things of God. Listen, those who love God hate the things God hates. And this is where it gets penetrating, doesn't it? Those who love God hate the things of God. In fact, that psalm would go on to say, you have loved righteousness and hated what? Wickedness. You say wickedness is a strong word, and I say, yes, it is. Hate it. Hating wickedness. Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, what? Here it is, hate evil. Don't tolerate evil. Don't condescend to evil. Don't give a place for evil. Don't give a foothold for evil. Don't rationalize evil. Don't accommodate evil in any way. The text says, if you love God, you love righteousness and you hate evil. No yabats. 1 John 1, just such a good text, we'll be in it a little bit this morning. Listen to this in terms of our accommodations in this world. The text says this, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? It's not in him. Listen to me, beloved. If you are one who loves God, I want to be categorical because I love you. You cannot love God and love the world. You cannot. You, you cannot love God and love the world. What did we read in the words, the ten words? Our God is a jealous God. You cannot love God and love the world. So much more I could say about that. Those who love God, love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. Yes, with those strong words, says the text. Beloved, those who love God hate evil. There is no love of the world in them at all. So no tolerance, no accommodation at all. And with that, those who love God, since we're in 1 John, love God's people. Do you love God's people? Do you love God's people? 1 John 3.14 says this, Listen, we know that we have passed out of death into life. This is how we know. This is our assurance of Christ in us. Because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death, says the text. Chapter 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves what? Has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So clear. Now that is in the character of those who love God. And there's so much there, right? And yet a step above all of that. Let's just continue with foundations here. 1 John 4.19, again, while we're in this letter, says this. Fundamentally, we love because we're really good at loving. 
Isn't that an amazing text? We love because you're a really loving person. No, what does the text say? We love because why? He first loved us. In other words, the text says loving the right way, the only way is impossible without God first loving us. Do you see that? So helpful. Those who love God have been first loved by God. Now that's key as we anchor back in Romans 8. Think about that. To love God means you must first be loved by God. There's a connection. And to be first loved by God has a theological weight behind it. Verse 28 again. Those who love God are those who are, look at the text, called according to his purpose. That's a defined group, a specific group, beloved. So we continue. Who are the called? Well, Paul will answer that in the next verse. But here, just to set our hearts right, and we should be very familiar with this in Romans now, this is the called that are the justified. That's exactly what we'll see in a moment. The called ones we've been studying, those of faith. Those of faith. Let's finish verse 28 so we can unpack that more in 29 and see what exactly those that love God know. Well, they know Christian, we know that for us all things work together for good. I want you to look at those words. This verse is just so well known, church, is it not? Man, I felt the weight of this this week. Just how can you preach a verse like this? This truth is incredible on so many levels, right? For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Can we even grasp that? Let's do some observation 101, because we must when we study the Word. It does not say some things work together for good, does it? It says what? All things. All things. So for those that love God, what things are excluded here? The answer is nothing. You say painful things? The Word says yes. You say bad things? The Word says yes. You say bad treatment? You don't know how it was treated this week? The Word says yes. You say, all evil? I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on out there. It's really evil. The word says yes. See, yet all things work together for good or to the good because of the agency of God. This is in one verse, one blessed verse, the doctrine of God's providence as it applies to us saints. Of course, that doctrine is broader. But to applying to us saints, the truth of God is this reality. Let it wash us this morning. That God is continually working by and through and in and every single one of our circumstances in our lives to bring about his purposes. With no exclusions. God's providence indeed extends beyond believers, but that's for another lesson. Paul is fixating us on believers. For now, Christian, note, God is working out his purposes, his plan, his decree through all things in your life. Every single thing he is working his purposes out. Do you grasp that this morning? Everything in your life God is using, working together. So immense. And since it is God's purposes, here it is. Since it's God's purposes, that's why it's good, right? It's not just anyone. It's not the clever consultant, the really resourceful guy that can make something out of none. This is God. His purposes are good. 
Now, let's not betray the context here. Remember, we're hugging the text and recognize that good in Romans 8 has a distinctly eschatological flavor, meaning good is the good that is coming. That's where Paul wants us to expand our horizon. There's good coming. Good is the glory that is to be revealed to us. Good is what the creation is groaning for and what we ourselves eagerly await. Good, in so many ways, is this not true? Good is unseen now. That is all true as we've learned in Romans 8 as we await that coming day. Yet, good has its manifestations along the way. This is the getting you there. This is so often we don't see the good in a present circumstance. But God gives us a glimpse in hindsight to realize, well, wow, he was really working for the good. How many testimonies, I think, as I look out at this room, can you say with me, thank God it didn't work out that way? For many of us, we wouldn't even be here today, would we? This is the unseen goodness that's always at work, the hand of God. Now, again, as we need to really understand and grasp the scope that Paul gives us here. Let's consider this more deeply and let's go to that. Let's consider the scope first. Christian, look, God is at work in all the circumstances of your life, as we said, each and every one. So let's press this because the text does. There is no non-God corner of your life. We love our retreatism, don't we? We love like, okay, God, you know, Sunday morning, I put in my due. But Monday night, that's me. There's no non-God corner of your life. There's no, this is too trivial compartment of your life. There is no, this is too evil for God place in the cosmos. No, all of it, God. Beloved, there's no thing in your life too small for God's providence. Isn't that what Matthew 6.26 teaches us? Second, we need to consider the outcome. Consider the scope. Secondly, consider the outcome. Look, for good or toward the good. And I know I can't do this justice, but we'll try. It does not say all things work together for our comfort, does it? Does it say that? It doesn't say all things work together for our convenience. Does it say that? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say all things work together for our safety. It doesn't say all things work together as we expect. It doesn't say all things work together as we would like or want or will. It says nothing of the sort, does it? No, this verse gives us one blessed terminal truth. And it is this, that all things work together for good. All things. God works together. All God, all good. Church, it's true. Good is not always what we think is best, is it? And can I say to you, I think we all get this now, good often hurts, doesn't it? In fact, good often hurts a lot because it's so good. Consider that in line with what we've learned in this passage. Keep context. Good is what, verse 27, last week, is what is according to the will of God. So it can't be what we expect or want or will. This is God's will, not yours, not mine. As we'll see in verse 29, good is what conforms to the image of his son. We may think it's best. We may really want it. We may be convinced and have an army saying it's good for you. But God says, no, that won't conform you to the image of my son. So important. 
Such a truth, beloved, is only possible if God is in absolute control of all things. Do you see the implications? This cannot be true unless God is sovereign. It can't be. In fact, what Paul is priming the pump for the upcoming chapters, we're going to see this further in chapter 9, 10, and 11. The plan for Israel, the plan for the Gentiles, all of that, and the blessed way it's unfolded and will unfold, is only possible if God is sovereign. There is no other way. As we prepare for those upcoming chapters, we consider other chapters. Do you know them? In fact, you know exactly the chapters and the verses that we need to say because you know your Bible. And God has never changed, has he? And when Joseph spent time in the pit and two years in prison, through the evil intentions of his brothers, and everything seemed down and out to any earthly observer, as Joseph, in hindsight, looked at his brothers, were bowing down before him, as prophesied, and verse 20 said this, As for you, you meant evil against me. That, that takes nothing away from their own wills, does it? You meant it for evil. You knew exactly what you're doing. You're not a robot. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Amazing. That's another one of those verses, right? We could just never get to the depths of. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So encouraging. What about Israel in Jeremiah 29? Listen to this, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, this is what he says to the exiles, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, and I love that, with no comment on how difficult that would be to be away from Jerusalem, but just the comment that you're in exile, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, One imagines the exile saying, do you know the evil we're experiencing? Right? One could say that we were exiled, taken away from our land. No, the Lord says what they meant for evil, I meant for good to give you future and a hope. I have a plan in exile, like I did with Joseph and his brothers. And of course, none more well known than this, Acts 2.23. Peter rises up. On that day of Pentecost, and he says, This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was going to happen. You crucified, you're culpable, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God working through the intentions of evil for, for good. And then this, Acts 4, 27 to 28, listen to this. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. In other words, they've been placed, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Make no mistake, and this is clear through Christ's ministry in the book of Acts, man on the hook. Evil men, the Jewish leaders, the Romans on the hook for the crucifixion of Jesus. But God took that evil and worked it together for good for all of those that would love him by way of the cross and forgiveness. Amazing. For Joseph, for Israel, for salvation. God was in and through and over all things. Think about that. Evil brothers, prolonged captivity, and the criminality of Jewish leaders. What would we think in those present circumstances when we saw it happening? Crucify him! Crucify him! How can this be for good? 
Those are the cries, little did they know, of eternal redemption. Right? Amazing. Only with God. Christian, he was working together and amid such wickedness then, and let's apply this before we move to verse 29. If he was doing that in Israel and in the early church for his people then, what of your circumstances today? As the calendar turns to October 1, 2023, what of your circumstances? You're all going through something right now. What of it? Your trial. Your mourning. Your sickness. What about the ill treatment you're receiving right now? What about your own sinfulness? What about the evil leaders? The wicked agendas? The corruption, the ideologies, the injustice? I won't go on. All of it. Westmount, hear the text. All of it. All things, by way of God's providential hand, are worked together for the good of those who love God. That is your assurance of the good. That's your assurance of the good. But it has a twin, right? Let's move there now. We're not just assured of the good, but also of the glory. We read these final two passages or verses in this chapter. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians refer to those two verses as the golden chain. You've probably heard them refer to that, which means there's a linked, like a chain, set of initiatives that are divine, hence golden. Right? They're linked together. They're inseparable. That's why they call it the golden chain. And you can see that just from a plain reading. And that's the observed uh, detail of these verses. There's an inseparable connection between these. Notice, just taking these verses in, look at them. There's nothing that breaks the thread. Look at it between foreknowledge, God foreknew, and all the way through to glory. Do you see that? They're connected and nothing breaks that chain. In other words, there's no greater passage demonstrating the eternal security of those who love God. There isn't. It's right here in front of us. Those who love God. If you are truly in this chain, here it is, you truly will never leave it. You see that? If you're truly in the chain, that's the big question, if you're in it, but if you're in it, you truly will never leave it. Amazing. Amazing truth. Philippians 1.6 says, as we affirm that truth in the word, I am sure of this, the apostle says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See that assurance? Will. There's no off-ramp there. And it says, he who began a good work in you. Not, I hope that you can keep it. He who began the good work will hold you fast. In Philippians, it is God's initiation and God's work. And what of here in Romans 8, 29, 30, the same thing. Scan these verses with me. It says, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, those whom he glorified, all connected together. This is God's work in this golden thread, moving those who love him, as we've seen, right through each step of this process from start to glorious finish. This is then, Westmount, the assurance of glory. We're assured because it's God's initiation, not ours. We're assured because it's God's work, not ours. We're assured because God will bring it to completion, not us. Do you see the assurance? It's the assurance of glory. 
If any of this, beloved, was up to us, and I think some of us get this, if this was up to us, we would have due and just cause to be anxious all the time, wouldn't we? Let me be plain and simple and make it personal this morning. If my salvation was up to me and keeping myself in God, I would be a nervous wreck. Probably more. But it's not, says this text. And to close out this glorious thought and passage, and let's examine each. Verse 29, for those whom he, that's God, foreknew. Foreknew is a compound word in the original. Prognosco, it means pro, beforehand. Gnosco, to know. So to know something beforehand, or to know beforehand, very simply. Now some might posit, and many do, that this is knowing facts beforehand. You've probably heard that, that God knew some facts beforehand. Tying it to his omniscience and so on. So as you've maybe heard, God knew the facts beforehand about who would choose him. Who would say, pick me. Who would raise their hand, if you will. Some would say, and they'd go to this verse and say, God looked down the corridor of time and he saw deep down those that would say, pick me. Maybe you've heard that. God, of course, could do that. But if that's true, that truth has implications, doesn't it? Right? If he did that. So consider two things as we think deeply here. Let's take advantage of this letter and these verses. Let's think deeply together. The Old Testament background of the term to know, yada in the Hebrew, is intimacy. That's always been biblical. When it talks about knowledge, it's intimacy. And I'll show you, not only is the word used as an expression of physical and marital intimacy, it's used of a, a, a very deep knowing that in the Old Testament language, is used of a husband and wife coming together in relations, sexual relations. Same word is used in the Septuagint in Genesis 4.1. It says this, Adam, what? Knew his wife. Well, what does that mean? And she conceived and bore Cain. That's the level of intimacy to know. Not facts. Each other. People. The Old Testament speaks of God knowing Israel also. Listen, in a covenant relationship, same word, same idea. This is, again, more than just facts or choice. Biblically, this is knowing someone. This is intimacy. And if we put that together with the idea in verse 29 of beforehand, we realize this is knowing someone beforehand in eternity past intimately. You see it? This is God knowing someone long before they could know God. Do you see that? Amazing. God knew you long before you could even know God, right? This is God knowing someone as the first step in being set apart and consecrated. On that, Jeremiah 1 is very, very helpful as we look to sharpen our understanding. Listen to the, the prophet's call. Jeremiah 1, 45. Listen to this. Now, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I what? I knew you. How? And before you were born, I consecrated you. So before, not only did he know him, he said to Jeremiah, I have a ministry for you. Before he was even formed in the womb, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God says, before you were even put together and could even form a thought in the womb, I knew you. That's it. That is foreknowledge, which, by the way, is the basis for God not rejecting Israel. We'll get to this in Romans 11 too. Listen to this. It says this, God has not rejected his people whom he what? He foreknew. That's the basis of not rejecting Israel. So good. Israel foreknown by God, that intimate 
Known, chosen by God, set apart by God. Thus, if that's true, they can't be rejected. They can't lose their preeminent status as God's people among the peoples. And Christian, it's the same truth for you. So that brings us to the second implication. Not only that to know has an intimate background, too, foreknowledge based on all those uh, proposals which seem very intellectual and very logical. God looks down the corner and such. Secondly, foreknowledge cannot be based on our future actions. Or here's the implication. Think with me. God's grace is null and void, isn't it? Right? If it's true and the initiation is just something God saw down and really it was man that said, pick me, that nullifies grace, doesn't it? One commentator laid out the implications plainly. Let me read it in full. This is very helpful. In his omniscience, God is certainly able to look to the end of history and beyond and know in advance the minutest detail of the most insignificant occurrences. So we all say, yes, of course he can do that. But did he? In salvation's case, it is both unbiblical and illogical, he says, to argue from that truth that the Lord simply looked ahead to see who would believe and then chose that particular individual for salvation. If that were true, and now he's going to roll out the dangerous implication here. Listen very carefully. He said, if that were true, that very clever, very logical schematic, if that were true, salvation not only would begin with man's faith, but would make God obligated to grant it. In such a scheme, God's initiative would be eliminated and his grace would be spoiled. End quote. Church, God foreknew us means God initiated our salvation in eternity past. As Jeremiah, as Israel, as us, so clear in the text. God foreknew us means before we could know at all, God knew us and set us apart. Again, this is what these verses are saying over and over and over again. And God's foreknowledge of us logically flows into his next initiation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Look at it. Predestined, like foreknowledge, has an important prefix on there that means pre or prior or before. And where foreknowledge was to know beforehand, predestined is plainly to be destined, bound, or purposed in a similar prior way. And what is the purpose that God initiated for those whom he foreknew beforehand? Look at verse 29. This is it. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, Westmount, look with me. I know it's getting on, but let's think together. It doesn't say, it doesn't say he predestined to salvation, does it? That's what we want to say. So our systematic theologians want to run to say, it doesn't say that, does it? The verse doesn't say that. Other passages, Ephesians 1, do say that, right? I think about verse 11 and even the sense of working all things together in salvation, right down to God's providence. But as we focus on Romans 8, we're told that our predestination saint is for the express purpose. Here it is of son conformity, Christ conformity. And that, of course, requires adoption that Ephesians 1 speaks about. Romans 8 earlier, 15 speaks about. And it requires salvation, doesn't it? To be conformed to the image of Christ needs a prerequisite, and that actually is salvation. But here in verse 29, Paul's point is that God purposed you, Christian. He predestined you after he foreknew you to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's it. That's the purpose. This is beyond salvation, beloved. Salvation is required, but it's not the point of this text. This is gloriously more. This, again, is purpose. This is the purpose of your salvation. Paul's been making this argument through the whole letter. You have been saved back onto yourself. You've been saved onto a life that you should live as you ought. Right? That's been the point. 
You've studied this, and it makes sense as you put it together. We're saved from sin to righteousness, a slave transfer, not set free to self. We're saved for a purpose, to be Christ-like, saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's purpose. And it's the purpose, Christian, that you were predestined for. This is identity. This is family, as verse 29 goes on to say. Look at it. This conformity to Christ is so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you note the family language there? Christ, the elder brother. Do you see that? So good. And like all eldest brothers, by the way, look at this. All eldest brothers. The firstborn goes first, right? It's true. If you're a firstborn, you go first. Read Colossians 1.15. With me, you can turn there. Listen to this. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We read verse 18, and he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the firstborn. He's the head of the church, meaning he went before those in the church. Christ, the firstborn, is the idea we looked at at verse 23, the first fruit. As Christ goes first in death and resurrection, so to us. Daniel read 1 Corinthians 15, right? All the things that Christ went before us, including that magnificent glorified body, right? That is awaiting us. He went first, so to us. That is the point here as the elder brother. Church, this has always been God's plan from eternity past. Now listen, we'll put it together as we land the plane. God created Adam and Eve in his image to worship God and live for him. But they rebelled and separated themselves from God along with all after them. With the image of God marred in this humanity, God's plan was renovation, remember? Renewal. And so he sent the perfect image, Christ, to bring a remnant of humanity back. Now such Christ, the firstborn, the elder brother, went before the other brothers and sisters, who God purposed to be restored back to the original design. And here it is, through the elder brother, through Christ. Amazing. That's our purpose, Christians. Ongoing conformity to Jesus. That's what we're predestined for. Listen, Christ conformity is the implication of your salvation. Christ conformity is the implication of your salvation. As we move to verse 30, we realize at this point, I pray, this is an unstoppable process. We can't stop till we cover these beautiful truths. Who God formed knew, then he predestined. And then look at this in verse 30. It says that in those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Just so much here. Let's pray we do it justice in the short time we have left. So, so good. He also called. We come back to that word now. Do you remember called back in verse 28? The called were those defined as those called according to purpose. So in both verses, the idea is that the purposed ones, here it is, are the called ones. Do you see that? If... You're called according to his purpose. You're called specifically. In other words, those foreknown are those predestined and naturally are the ones called. Now, Westman, let's think here and see this cannot be a general call. It's not like just sending out invitations, wondering who will get back, right? This is kind of more akin to the doctor's office, isn't it? You sit in the waiting room because you have an appointment and they've done work on your file, and they will call you. Right? Do you see the difference? Two very clear differences between this calling here. 
That kind of calling again, just a general, I hope someone responds, is not specific or particular. Listen, people can decline that call, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. For sure, there is a general call of the gospel. See Romans 10 this, later this fall. But this call in Romans 8 is not that. This call is what is referred to as an effectual call. What do we mean by that? This call is not an outward call for ears only, but an inward call to the heart. This is not potential, this is pull. As the context shows in these verses, when you receive this call, it means God foreknew you. Do you see that? To receive this call means you were foreknown. To receive this call means you're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Simply, Westmont, this is a call that cannot be resisted. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If God's calling you through this, it can't be resisted because it's part of God's plan. This call is irresistible because God is not just calling anyone to Christ's conformity. Look again, God is calling those whom he foreknew and those he predestined. I just want you to think with me for a moment. I know we're near the end, but I pray this is helpful. The illogic, if God foreknew and predestined and called and you rejected. That, that, that's grievous, right? To the purpose of God. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense practically. And listen, it doesn't concert biblically. Listen to 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, listen carefully, it says this, Who saved us, this is God, to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of our pick but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. That's a calling according to God's purpose, rooted in eternity past. This is calling, effectual calling, of those who love God. Not a call to anyone, this is God calling his own. This is the call, I mean, if we had time, we would go through the Gospel of John to show John 6.37, John 6.44. Those that are called by God, right? Those who the Father draws. All of these blessed texts, we, time betrays us. The Father must draw his children to Christ, the firstborn Son. And we know that all are not drawn to Christ, are they? But it is true, many are called. And so you say, well, how do we reconcile the difference? We again turn to Jesus, Matthew 22.14. Jesus said, many are called, and we could say generally, many are called. You share the gospel. Many are called that way, but few are chosen. Few are effectually called by God. Few are foreknown. Few are predestined. That's the point. This elective calling naturally is linked to a new position in Christ. And that brings us to justification, which we've covered already. Paul has, Romans 3, 4, and 5. The reality of the new righteousness we have in Christ we're no longer dead in Adam. We're alive in Christ. We have, we've been justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. And here we simply need to see, church, what lies behind our justification. This is just so amazing that we were justified, but first, before we were justified, we were foreknown, predestined, and called according to the plan of God. Justification, it turns out, as we broaden the scope in Romans, is a link in the unbreakable chain of God's plan for you, Christian, and me. And we know to end here, it's not the end of the chain, the plan of God. Back to verse 29. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory. Just look at it. This is the terminus, Christian. Do you see that? Not justification, by the way. Justification is glorious, but it's not the end. Justification is not just simply free to live now, free to figure it out on my own now. No, glory, you're in process. Justification is a part, but not the whole of God's plan. 
This is about, Romans 8 here, is where we're headed. Glory, back to verse 18, that is to be revealed to us. It culminates here, verse 30. Along with the creation's renewal, we ourselves, Christian, will be glorified. This is not a possibility. Look at the verse again. It says, he also glorified, and we must address this. It's most commonly the translation in front of you renders that in the past tense, meaning completed action. That is a, a good rendering. And you say, but I've not been glorified yet. You don't know my body. But beloved, you have been glorified in one core sense already, have you not? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, if you're a Christian, who is in you? Holy Spirit regenerated your heart, taking a dead heart and giving you, in one sense, a glorified soul that's regenerated. That's one. So in one sense, there's glory in there. Two, Christian, God decreed your glory. And this is where we kind of got to wrap our minds around that. He decreed it in eternity past. And like every decree of God, even though many of them are still to come, when God decrees it, it is done, right? Isn't that blessed? When God decrees it, it's like it's done. So good. Think think of Psalms like Psalm 2. He's decreed that it will be done, and it is done. Your glory is so certain, so assured, that it's actually here grouped with other past completes. You were foreknown, and to be foreknown means you're predestined for a glorified body, conformity to Christ's image. That purpose means you are called by God, justified, which means then you have been glorified. All complete action. Yes, like salvation started in a waiting consummation. That's like our salvation, right? But worked out now, so too glory. Listen to the glorious testimony of the New Testament. This is so good. Colossians 3, verse 10. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Isn't that good? In one sense, think about that. That is glory in you now, Christian. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says this, And we all with unveiled face, Christian, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You are being transformed, Christian, right now into Christ's image Glory unfolding in your life right now from one degree to another. That's glorification done. That's your assurance of glory. Precious saints, this has been one grand passage. I understand that, but there's really one takeaway. This is what we want to do. We want to keep it simple here, don't we? One takeaway. Let's say this. Believer, the sin and the sufferings, the groanings and the grief, persecutions coming, maybe right now. The all things in this present life that you are going through right now are all part of what God is working together to work out for your good and for glory. I just simply want to say to you this morning, be encouraged in that. All of it, because of Christ and in Christ, be encouraged in it. Because it is Christ, as we've learned in this letter, he is your assurance of good. It is Christ who is your assurance of glory. Beloved, I pray that your hope rests in that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to learn these truths together with one mind and now to respond in one voice.
Oh God, help us to do that rightly. Help us to do it in a way that you make us worthy to respond to you. We ask and pray now in Christ's name. Amen.